Florida is where woke goes to die. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is both popular. Ron DeSantis decidedly winning his re-election for governor. And controversial. DeSantis testing the limits of governing with an iron fist. Back in May, I sat down with him in his office for an extended interview. I asked him about some of the things he's done in Florida and what he'd do if he were president and why he thinks he can win. In Florida, we came in four, four and a half years ago, swing state, evenly divided. We win by half a percent. And then after four years of good leadership, you know, we were able to win by almost 20 points, 1.5 million votes. And not just those are not just Republicans. I mean, we're happy that we've got a lot of Republicans that support us and, and we have got a strong base, uh, but we're winning decisively amongst independents. You know, we won 60 percent of Hispanics. And that's really, I think, the type of coalition that you need to build to be able to win nationally. What caused that probably was COVID. And you did a good job with COVID. Well, but I think it's what's instructive about that is all those decisions I was making, I was pilloried for by the corporate press, by the left, by people in the administration, by bureaucrats, even by some Republicans, you know, at the time were saying everybody that, that was I was that I was wrong. Case. You know, I was taking a lot of incoming. The cases were exploding and he decided to just sit back and do nothing. We have officially entered Florida airspace. As Governor DeSantis stated, while you're within state lines, not have to wear a mask. And so I just had to make the decision as a leader, are you going to worry about kind of the daily news cycle? Are you going to worry about your personal popularity? Are you going to focus on protecting the jobs and freedoms of the people you represented? And so I resolved I did not know how it was going to work out politically, uh, but I was going to do what I thought was right. And I think what happened was as time wore on, people are like, you know what? Florida's doing it right. We're thankful to be here. This guy saved my job. He saved my business. He kept my kid in school. And so I do think we had um, a lot of support. I can go out to a beach. I can go to a restaurant. I don't have to wear a mask all the time. And there were no more deaths. There were fewer deaths. Yeah, than so we actually had, if you look at excess mortality, we were the lowest in the Sun Belt and we were lower excess mortality than California and New York. And you know the thing about excess mortality is, yes, it includes COVID deaths, but the lockdowns caused other deaths too. And so the fact that people were free to make their own decisions here, overall, they were healthier because it's not healthy to tell someone they should be in their home and not come out for weeks or months on end. You know, you want to be out and about and, and, and be normal. And so I think from a mental health perspective, from an education perspective, obviously from an economic perspective, we did so much better than a lot of the lockdown states. But the media was loving Governor Cuomo and all over your case, CNN, Don Lemon. Some governors are putting their own political gain ahead of children's lives. They want to protect kids, Governor. What do you want? They want to protect kids, Governor. What do you want? <laughs> it's funny because Don Lemon, big critic always, the minute he could escape the New York lockdowns, where did they find him? They found him Florida. in South Florida. They found governors who locked down in Florida. Mayors in big cities would come down to Florida. So some of that, I think, was just a charade. But I think that's an interesting quote because when we had kids in school, that's exactly what the critics were saying. They were saying we were putting the children at risk 
by having them in school because there was a virus that didn't cause them any significant risk. So the damage to the kids was locking them out of school. And now we've seen, now the people look back and they'll acknowledge the damage, but what they're trying to say, particularly in the corporate press, oh, let, let's not cast blame, let's just move on, let's not do it. No, we need to cast blame. The people that wanted to lock the kids out of school uh, were wrong. They did a lot of damage and probably as much damage as policymakers have done in the modern history of this country, we stood against all of them and we were right to do so. Many states had mask mandates. Yeah, we never mandated masks in the state of Florida. You had some local jurisdictions that did. So what I did, I used my clemency power to say no, uh, no penalties for wearing a mask or not. It's your choice. And so you actually had some uh, local police departments that were going to fine people in like Miami for not wearing a mask. So we, we kneecapped them from, with our clemency power. And then with the schools, we said it's a parent's choice whether they wanna send their kid with a mask or not. So we were able to overrule a lot of the school districts and let kids go to school mask-free. Great, but let me push back. I'm confused by how you do things. You wanna prohibit masking requirements at businesses, all businesses. But if it's my business and I'm scared and I wanna have that, why can't I? Well, look, I think it's an issue with, with COVID. What was happening is you had some big corporations that were basically imposing a Fauciism, vax mandates, mass mandates. And what we've had to say is, you know what? Uh, your personal freedom to make these decisions in Florida is going to be respected. So we barred the vax mandates and said that's your choice. And the same thing with the mass. The mass, even Fauci's now admitted the mass. He said maybe 10% reduction. So some of it is irrational. And I think you just have to decide, yes, your business, you do have freedoms to choose, but so do individuals. So do you side with the individual or do you side with the corporation? And so on these biomedical issues in Florida, we've just consistently sided with the individual. But it's my business. If I have a candy store and I want to say you have to stand on your head to buy my candy. Yeah, but I what? mean, you, you know businesses. There's certain business regulations that we all have to, yeah, everyone's got to abide by in terms of I'm who just you surprised can you're pushing them. But, well, no, but I mean, some of it is just kind of standard workplace stuff. And so the issue is just as a customer, uh, is that something that we want to support from the customers or not? And I think part of it is we really view the biomedical regime. It's been one of the biggest threats to freedom in my lifetime, maybe the biggest in terms of how it was imposed. And I think had Florida not stood up against a lot of this, I think it would have been much worse across the country and it likely would have persisted a lot longer. So sometimes you've got to say, okay, is this something that we want in our state at all? Or do we want to just say, you know, let individuals be the ultimate arbiter of these decisions? And so that's how we've come down. Likewise, school choice. Florida now leads on school choice. You have $8,000 that any parent can take to a private school. They can switch to another public school. Why is this good? Well, ultimately, uh, it empowers people, particularly low-income families and a lot of single mothers who are working but don't have enough money to necessarily send their kid to the school of their choice. And so you now have that ability in Florida. And we've had school choice for a while, but we really expanded it. Here's why I think it's, it's, it's worked. The public schools have improved in Florida as a result of school choice. You think, well, wait a minute, you as a parent may be going out of the public school. How's the public school doing better? Because when they know because that- Because of that. Exactly. When they know the parents have- empowerment to make a choice, they have to up their game because they want to attract students too. So if you look in school districts in Florida, most of the school districts offer intra-district school choice programs. So in a place like Miami-Dade, 70% of our students go to a school other than their neighborhood 
public school. Some of it's private scholarship, some of it's public charter schools, but even within the school district, they're going to magnet programs or specialty programs. And so I think what's happened, it's created a culture of competition where school districts, charter schools, and private schools compete for parents' basic approval, and they know that a parent's empowered. If you're not doing a good job, the parent actually has the ability to vote with their feet and send their kids somewhere else. And competition does make us all better. Absolutely. When you have a monopoly, uh, what incentive do you have to offer new things or to innovate? You don't have any incentive to do that. In Florida, you do. And of course, the money follows the kid. So just from a financial perspective, the school district wants to attract as many people because if they don't, then, then they wouldn't have as much per, per student. So again, if you believe in choice, why have a rule that says no school can require masks? If you have a bunch of scared parents who want that, why can't they? Because it's, it's irrational to force well, a kid to wear- Who are you to It's irrational. Because we've watched the science and we've watched it. And here's the thing. What happened with COVID was hysteria took over evidence-based uh, analysis. And so when we saw the hysteria to have these kids in masks that are six or seven years old, nobody had ever said or proven that that was effective. It was just being done out of fear. And so our view is the policy shouldn't be based on fear. Now, parent wants to send their kid and our parents' bill of rights, you know, you know, they can do that, but it cannot be required for a student to do it. And I'll tell you, when we said you couldn't mandate it, guess how many kids decided to keep wearing masks? Very few decided to do it. So if it was something that was so good, then how come 90% of them immediately ditched the mask? And here's the thing, we can argue about whether masks work. I don't think the cloth masks have proven to work. However, even if you think they work, you have to wear it properly. A first grader is not wearing this mask properly. It's crumpled in, it's this, it's that. And so we just had to say, you know, no. And so I think we were right to do that. If a parent wants to send their kid uh, with it, they're allowed to send their kid with it. It just can't be required of them by the government. For more of my content, go to johnstossel.com. I post a new short video every Tuesday. That's at johnstossel.com. Immigration. What would you do about the border? Well, I would immediately declare a, a national emergency. I would mobilize all departments, including the Department of Defense. I would reinstitute things like remain in Mexico. I mean, look, part of the reason you have what's coming across the border is because people know if they just come across illegally, they get to stay. Well, of course, then they're going to want to come. So if you say no, if you come illegally, you're not going to be able to allow entry. You're going to remain in Mexico. And I'd also probably do something on the executive side to just say, because most of these are bogus asylum claims. We're just not going to entertain an asylum claim coming across the southern border because what's happening is a lot of these people are traveling through multiple countries to get. And normally, if you're seeking asylum, that first safe country you go to, that's when you apply. But instead, they're kind of abusing the asylum for a free ticket um, into the United States. I do think you need a, a border wall because we don't have enough resources to, to police that whole wall, and so what, or the whole border. So the wall will channel people into the ports of entry where you can have personnel and you can keep the country secure. And to make this point, you brought some immigrants from Texas to Florida to Martha's Vineyard? So ultimately, you know, what, I think one of the problems with the border is the people, the liberal elites who want the open border, 
they don't ever face any of the, the blowback or, or any of the consequences of this decision. These, these towns in Texas are getting overrun. Uh, I sent people to help Greg Abbott at the border in 2021, and like a third of the people our folks were encountering, they said they wanted to go to Florida. And so we started to see people trickle in. And so we said, so, so Texas was doing the buses to New York. You know, we said, you know, we will help with transport. So the legislature gave us some money. And so we ended up doing a, a flight uh, 50 to Martha's Vineyard. This video provided by DeSantis's office, which says it was obtained by a source on the ground, appears to show the migrants arrival on the island. And guess what? Martha's Vineyard advertised itself as being a sanctuary jurisdiction. They and had, explain what that means. So basically, they had a, a, an office in their downtown, which was for like refugees. They said, nobody's illegal. Everyone's welcome here on the vineyard. That's what they were advertising. Turns out that was all just a fraud. They didn't really want to be a place. So 50 show up. They have an abundance of resources and they got the Massachusetts National Guard to deport them off the island the next day. So you think about these poor towns in Texas have thousands and thousands of people coming through. They're just supposed to deal with it, but yet one of the wealthiest enclaves in America couldn't even have 50 come in. And so I think what it shows is open borders just doesn't work. Uh, and we need to kind of get away from Biden's policy and, and actually do something that's going to protect the public. And the media pounced on you as cruel. Incredibly inhumane to be using women and children and families as a political pawn. Using people as literal pawns in a power play. Intentionally chose not to call ahead to Martha's Vineyard so even the most basic human needs could be made. Do you think uh, these Texas border towns are having people call ahead? I can tell you they've had people in, in the past in Florida where the federal government has brought people maybe coming from Haiti and they've never done that. But I think that uh, most of those people that, that went to the vineyard, they were thankful uh, to, to be able to be in that area. Uh, they didn't have opportunities. They were kind of left. They were not treated well by Biden and, and they didn't really have anywhere to go. So the idea that, that it was cruel, that's just totally false. And I remember even like MSNBC was uh, was interviewing some of them and they're like, yeah, they're very happy that, that they, got the, they got the trip out there. It was inconvenient for the Martha's Vineyard residents because they had to either say, all right, are we gonna put our money where our mouth is or is all this just empty virtue signaling? and they decided to show us that it was all empty virtue signaling. Most of the people who fight to get here want to work, yes? So here, I think it's a mix. I mean, I think clearly uh, what you've had come across the border, uh, there have been folks involved in narcotics trafficking, there have been general criminal aliens, there have been people who have been deported previously. I'd say the bulk of these people are basically being trafficked by the drug cartels, and they're basically being promised an ability to stay in America, you know, work, and they'll make more money here, even if they're working illegally, than they will there. So, so, so I think that's true. But I also think, just as a country, you've got to have a process in place. Uh, you've got to make sure that the people are coming, that we know who they are, and that they're serving uh, needs of the American people. Immigration is ultimately what's in the best interest of the people we have here that are citizens. No foreigner has a right to come to the United States, and we as a free people have a right to, to determine what those uh, criteria and what those limits are. Don't we cause some of the problem by making it so hard for good people to come here to work? Well, I mean, to do it legally takes years. And if you look at our legal immigration system, 
the overwhelming number of slots have nothing to do with merit or, or, or talent. Uh, you have things like the diversity lottery, which should be abolished. You have things like chain migration. Look, I'm all about a U.S. citizen bringing a foreign spouse and getting them in the immigration, 100%. But to bring like the the, the cousins and stuff and like they get in line over somebody that may be offering uh, doesn't make any sense. And so if you look at like a Canada or Australia, what do they do? They do merit-based uh, immigration. And, and I think that's a much better uh, way to do it than what we've done here in the United States since like pretty much the mid 60s, where we've had the diversity lottery and all these other things. And to clarify, these other countries say, if you are a computer engineer, if you have specific skills, we'll let you in. So they have what, what are the needs of the public? Uh, what are the needs that we have? And then they gear the immigration towards a merit base, whereas something like the United States, the diversity lottery is literally just ping pong balls where some country gets chosen and then people come in from that country on a lottery basis, which makes no sense in terms of serving our national interests. Next. After months of heated protests in Florida, don't say gay is now in effect. The hot issue now, sex education in schools. Florida banned public school teachers from teaching about sexual orientation or gender identity. First K through third grade, and now even that's gone. 12th grade. Why? Well, so what the legislature is doing, they're, they're adding through eighth as the statutory prohibition. And so, so I support that. Well, I look, I think the reason is, is because, you know, this is something that is really, they're trying to pursue an agenda. Like when you're telling a student that they may have been born in the wrong body, that's just not appropriate uh, for, our, for our public school system or any school system. So let's focus on the academics. Let's focus on the core subjects. Those matters of something like transgender or, or probing some, some student's sexuality, that is not appropriate for the schools. And so the parents wanna have those discussions. Many parents would probably not wanna talk about transgender. Some may want to, but I don't see how it, it can work in the school system in a way that, that, that pleases very many people. And so we're focusing on the basics. You're going to get a, a traditional education in Florida and some of the other stuff that's come in very, very recently. You know, we're going to leave that to the parents uh, to discuss with their kids. The other stuff coming in recently, you mean transgender? Yeah, I, I just think the, the, the focus on things like sexuality, choosing pronouns, gender identity, all this stuff. Uh, really just not appropriate, uh, I think, in the classroom setting. Uh, and so we're really talking about what the curriculum is going to be. And, and that's really the focus about what the curriculum. It doesn't mean, obviously, those issues can come up in just society and even in, in school situations, but it isn't going to be part of our core curriculum. But they can come up in a school situation. A gay teacher can say he's gay. Yeah. So in that, in, in our, in our, uh, our law doesn't affect that. In the media, again. A bill that would make queer students feel unsafe and not accepted. Well, I think you know, it's interesting because so when we when we did parents' rights last year, uh, people have said, oh, this is going to cause all this. And yet now here we are having this the school year and, uh, and and all the parade of horribles just didn't happen. I mean, you're basically having curriculum geared towards core academic subjects. And that's that. It's not making anyone feel bad or not. It's just not having those subjects as part of your classroom curriculum. They can't teach any sex education to high school students? The school districts can. Um, it's not required in Florida. And so, so some school districts don't and, and, and others do. Um, but that's a decision that they make at the, at, the, at the school district level. Doesn't school choice kind of solve this? Parents who want kids taught about gender changes could have that. 
Well, I mean, clearly, if you have some private schools that are going down that road, that is either going to attract or, or repel uh, a certain number of parents. But I think when you're talking about what the taxpayers are funding, you just have to make a choice about what you want to do. So some of it is, you know, we just think it's inappropriate to be telling some 10-year-old kid that, yeah, you can change your gender. But even beyond that, every minute you're, you're gearing towards that as, as part of the curriculum, you're not doing the math or you're not doing the other things. And so some of this is just opportunity cost. You got to make a decision what you want to focus on. And the media still call this the don't say gay law. Don't say gay law. The don't say gay bill is don't say gay law. So that's the thing, you know, they try to create narratives and they, they try to kind of caricature things and they just kind of repeat. And, and the thing about it is, is the public just hasn't bought what they're selling. Uh, we had, it's not just Republican parents that, that were glad that we're keep focusing on the basics. There were parents across the board. And even when they would do polling, they would be surprised that like 70% of people thought that it was better to do what Florida was doing rather than doing uh, the other way. This has been the biggest news, but I think the biggest issue facing America is that we're going broke. So let's talk about that. Florida certainly isn't. You have a surplus here. What would you do if you were president? I mean, entitlements are bankrupting us. So I think that um, you know, Florida is instructive because you know, we have the second lowest debt per capita in the country. So our economy is $1.2 trillion plus. Our debt's $20 billion. I mean, so compared to the federal government, the debt is bigger than the entire national economy. Um, and it's gotten, it's gotten very, very bad. Part of what we're able to do in Florida, we have a balanced budget requirement. So even if some of these guys want to spend more, they have to make decisions. And the federal government doesn't have that. I think they should have it because as a politician, these guys, if they cut something you like, you're not gonna like that. If they raise your taxes, you're not gonna like that. So the easiest choice is to charge it on the credit card. If they were forced to make the decisions, I think you would get better situation. The other thing that we have here, I have a line item veto as governor. So last year I vetoed 3% of the budget. They said it on my desk, I vetoed the line items and we saved $3.3 billion. Uh, I think it would help to have the president do that because they give these big omnibus bills um, and, and it's just a total disaster. Now, in terms of the spending, uh, look at the discretionary spending over the last five or six years. I mean, huge increases in discretionary spending, you know, in, additional, in addition to some of the entitlements. Discretionary I mean, meaning? What Congress does on a yearly basis. And so some of the things that are, that are called entitlement state. programs, they're just in law and they, they're on autopilot. Congress can do nothing and they continue. But the typical budget that you do for the federal government to run all the agencies, they have to do that annually. And so what they've done is really starting with COVID, jack up the spending, the CARES Act, you had 2.2 trillion at the December 2020, Biden came in and put it on steroids with his American Rescue Plan, which was totally gratuitous, the infrastructure stuff. And so what they're doing is the Fed starting in March of 2020, inflated the currency, really did a big money supply increase. They're spending like drunken sailors. And of course, you're going to have inflation when that ends up happening. Now the Fed's had to hike interest rates. Why, does that, why is that important for the budget? Because the interest on the debt is now this massive line item uh, that we have to service our debt with. And so that's gone up hundreds of billions of dollars uh, just since then. Look, I think they're fighting in Washington now. If you just went back, to the 
amount of spending that Barack Obama proposed in his last budget for this year, it would be a dramatic reduction in terms of what they're actually spending. And so when they increase spending, they just keep the baseline and then keep going up from there. So you need to return the amount of money that the government's spending to pre-COVID levels. How? What would you cut? Well, you just you, you just have to, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of money that's been in the kitty for COVID, all this stuff that has not been spent. You can easily claw that back. And you just reset these agencies with the baseline. You know, in Florida, we don't do uh, what's called baseline budgeting. Baseline budgeting is whatever you got last year, you automatically add, and that's the starting point. Here, it's zero-based. You know, you as an agency may have had you know, $100 million last year, you get zero and you've got to justify to me before I put it in my budget. And so- This is unusual in government. Well, it is, but there's nothing wrong with just going back and saying, okay, let's start fresh. Where should we be? But you you know, Congress has not shown the inclination to do it. I know they're fighting over some of this stuff now, but it's almost like to show any spending restraint uh, is, is almost verboten there. Here's the thing, even if you didn't cut if you just held constant or even reduce the rate of increase, that would make a difference. They are adding more and more every single year with, with really no end in sight. There aren't entire departments you would cut, the education department, commerce, agriculture? No, look, I mean, I think we've always said the Department of Education should be a state issue. It should, should not be a federal issue. And now you see what they're doing to try to get involved in youth sports with the transgender athletes. They've tried to do other things that really impinge on our rights as states. Uh, and so, so that would be something. Republicans have promised that for a long time. They've never delivered any any reduction. So yeah, let's reduce some of the agencies. I think that that would be that would be really Which? positive. Which ones? Well, well I, I mean, you know, education certainly would be one. I mean, I think commerce. There's a lot of, of bloat there. There are some things within that that you have to do, uh, like the census. But part of it too is reducing the number of bureaucrats. You should simply reduce the federal bureaucracy through attrition. If you didn't, if you didn't uh, backfill a lot of these things, you know, over a period of years, you could reduce. I also think the executive does have the authority to fire way more people than we've been led to believe. I mean, you can't have a situation where someone can get elected president and yet the other side controls the entire executive branch with, with, the, with the bureaucracy. So I think asserting more authority there some of that may be directly firing, some of that may be reclassifying employees in like a Schedule F to where they can then be, be fired. That would go, I think, a long way. It would save money, but also in terms of constitutional accountability, because we have a fourth branch of government right now with the federal Leviathan, and they do what they want, and they almost kind of laugh at the idea that we're having these elections because they don't give a damn who's voting for who. They're gonna do what they want. And departments like agriculture? Agriculture just happens. Why do we need a department? <laughs> well, it's it's been a situation where there's all these different programs that have kind of been built up over the years. And so- We're stuck uh, with them? Well, it's it's. I think it's been something that's been difficult in the Congress uh, because, uh, you know, there's a certain way of doing things now with that. And so they've really got a, a lot of support. So I don't know that that would be something that you'd get a lot of, a lot of viability on, but I do think things like things like energy, I think you know the energy department, why, why was that created? What's it doing now? I think it's really turned into an anti-energy department. It's, it's harder for us uh, to produce the type of energy that we really need. And this discretionary spending really is 
small compared to the entitlements you mentioned. And you said Congress can't do anything about it, but with enough votes, Congress can take action. You once talked about raising retirement age. I mean, don't we have to do something? So, right. I mean, so what you look at is you look at what's the trajectory of the programs and, you know, what can you do not to affect somebody that's that's getting benefits, uh, but what can you do for people that are younger? And then, you you know, you have an opportunity to, to make decisions in your life. Uh, and here's the thing. I think a lot of younger people like me are, are receptive to this because I don't assume we're going to get any of this at this point right now. And so to 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 make whatever changes. But uh, I, I would not do things for people that are currently receiving these benefits because they've been made promises and we've got to fulfill them. But in the future, younger people, you're how old? 44. And you don't expect to get Social Security, Medicare? I mean, I think it's I mean, if you just look at the trajectory uh, that we're on now, there, there will likely be uh, things that, that are done that will make it very, very difficult. And so I think the theory behind, you know, identifying that, uh, making sure that, that the programs are, are consistent with, uh, you know, demographic change and whatnot, uh, is just that, that this could be done much more smoother. Instead, you could have some really, really significant um, um, turbulence uh, 10, 15 years into the future. You did once say we need to restructure these entitlements. And simply for saying that, and Republicans now run away from this, Donald Trump is running this gross ad that has you sticking your fingers in pudding and saying, DeSantis has his dirty fingers all over senior entitlements, like cutting Medicare, slashing Social Security, even raising our retirement age. Tell Ron DeSantis to keep his pudding fingers off our money. Well, it's interesting. You know, he wrote a book uh, saying that, you know, the retirement age should be 70. People shouldn't, should be. shouldn't even retire and all this other stuff. And so now, now he's doing that. But I think a lot of those, those are really Democrat attacks. Uh, when you see the way it is, the idea that somehow, you know, I'm I'm Florida governor, like like I have elderly constituents, like like, of course, we're going to we're going to honor the promises to the elderly. But you also have a responsibility to think, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down to the future. Um, you know, how do you do it in a way that, that is sustainable? So so I think a lot of those attacks are really uh, misplaced. And are you, as reported, a slob who eats pudding with your finger? Anonymous sources, that's that's what the media does to try to try to smear. But if that's the worst they can come up with, I must be doing OK. Why do you call them the corporate media? Because at the end of the day, I mean, you have these uh, entrenched institutions that have been there a long time. They developed a certain culture. And I think it's been a culture that, yeah, they'd always had a liberal bent for sure. But I think in the last five or 10 years, uh, they've developed a much more partisan edge. And I think that they're pursuing that agenda. And, you know, honestly, that's not out of character for most of American history. When the founders uh, generation, you had a Hamilton paper and a Jefferson paper, and they were very stridently partisan. And that's just how they presented the news. Um, but what bugs me and I think a lot of Republicans about it is they pretend that somehow they're objective. They're not. They're pursuing their agenda. And, and I get that and they have a right to do it. But I'm not going to sit there and, and humor them and, and say that, um, you know, that they treat them as some neutral arbiter. One more Trump ad about you. Ron DeSantis was struggling big time in his primary race for governor of Florida. Then DeSantis was saved by the endorsement of President Trump. They show you reading to your children. Make America great again. Build the wall. Then Mr. Trump said, you're fired. Big league. So good. Build the wall. 
Sounds like you were sucking up to Trump. Well, if you watch that, I mean, you know, it, it was it was it was a satirical ad. It was a little tongue in cheek, but that was when you know many years ago I was running, and um, we wanted to get some notoriety, and so I knew if we did that that it would cause the, the press to go berserk. And what they would do is they would be outraged by it, but they would keep playing it and so people would see. And so what we were able to say is, okay, here's my wife, we're a young family, here's that. And so that kind of got projected out. So I don't even know how much money we paid to, to run it, but the media ran it for us because they were so upset you know, that it was a, a pro-Trump ad. The military, should we spend more on the military? Look, I think we need more capacity, but I think we have a huge bureaucracy that needs to be reduced. And I think the civilian Pentagon needs to be reduced. I think we need to shake up the uniform services. And I think you need to audit the Pentagon. So I would have more ships, I would have more capability. There's a lot of bloat in the Pentagon that we should tackle. You resisted Obama, unlike other Republicans, when he wanted to send soldiers to Syria. So my view is, and having served in Iraq, um, I want a very strong military. I want peace through strength. But what I don't want to do is get involved in some commitment that there's not a clear rationale for what we're doing and there's not a concrete uh, identification of what, what does victory mean? And I think we get in trouble. Like in Iraq, we were there first for WMD, then that wasn't, then it was like create a democracy, but that's not a military objective. You know, we could go after the terrorists and that's fine, but creating a, a democracy, that's not even in our hands, and it ended up being something that didn't work out. So you know, if you're gonna use military force, you gotta have a concrete idea of what you're trying to accomplish, and there's gotta be a clear sense of victory. And I think our foreign policy establishment has wanted to do things like the Syria, which are more amorphous, um, and they're not really grounded in our core national security. Well, then likewise, why not end the drug war, which has gone on for 40, 50 years and hasn't accomplished anything? Well, look, I mean, I think we're now in a new era um, with this, with the rise of fentanyl. And I think you have to be very, very tough when you're talking about the supply of fentanyl. And we do, we have strong penalties for that. They market it to children now, um, putting it in candy. Which Still is coming their, in, the rules don't stop it. Well, but I think that uh, there's an opportunity to do, to do more uh, on interdiction, do more on holding the cartels accountable. Uh, but also, we focus on the demand side. Uh, we have programs in school to just let kids know that, hey, experimenting with something that you think may not be that harmful, if it's laced with fentanyl, you, you could die. That's just the truth. And so we want to give them that information. We also have a coordinated re opioid response uh, network, which really tries to treat people. So if someone goes and overdoses in a hospital, to just save them and put them back on the street, they're going to relapse. And so now we actually are with them, we can provide medication, uh, get them where they need to go so that they can be uh, gainfully employed and live their lives while managing this addiction, which is a very difficult thing. So we, we believe it's a, it's a full spectrum, but I do think the supply and the accountability needs to be addressed as well. So I would not say just bring in any fentanyl you want. And prohibition didn't change anything? We didn't learn that we created Al Capone and there are no beer gangs anymore. Yeah, but I think the difference between that is, is like the country had a, had a proud tradition of, of drinking and it was just something that we, we had done from the very beginning. Then they tried to outlaw it and this had been something that had been part of the culture. Whereas I think you think of things like heroin and fentanyl and this stuff, these have always been prohibited. So to, to legalize that, I think you'd end up seeing an increase in use and I think that would be bad. For more of my content, go to johnstossel.com. 
I post a new short video every Tuesday. That's at johnstossel.com. Finally, here's the issue DeSantis most wanted to talk about. Central bank digital currencies. The world is going to see a functioning CBDC very soon. Digital currency, the media make it sound like it's a great thing. <laughs> well, uh, if you don't care about your privacy and you want government to have even more control over the economy, then maybe it is. But I think most people uh, don't believe that. When you use your wallet to pay for something, the Fed would take the digital cash out of your wallet and deposit it into the merchants. What they want to do with the central bank digital currency, part of it is they want to displace all cryptocurrency because they can't control that. So they want to get rid of that. They want to move to a cashless society, which would basically mean the Federal Reserve, Treasury Department would have supervisory jurisdiction over all of your transactions. And so they would know what you're doing. And I think when you see that from a privacy perspective, very, very concerning. But then when you see what else is all going on in our economy, they're trying to do things like ESG. They want to impose ideology through the economy. And so what will end up happening with the central bank digital currency, all those uh, uh, views are going to be superimposed. And so it'll be a such situation. You're filling up too much tank of gas. Wait a minute. You climate change. You can't be doing that. You can't be buying. You bought another firearm. No, no, no. And they, they'll control the transaction. So I think it'd be a total disaster. Sometimes government does things that may appear to be benevolent, but really are kind of like a wolf, a wolf in sheep's clothing. This is a wolf coming as a wolf. I mean, if you uh, don't trust uh, central authority, then you should see this immediately as something that is very problematic. But a lot of people do trust central authority. And let me let you take these one at a time. I'll read from the president's executive order on responsible development of digital assets. This will protect consumers, investors, and the environment. I think that that last one's a tell because I think they would impose certain criteria uh, with uh, digital currency. And the thing about cash is cash is independence. Yeah, you have the cash in your wallet, you can go, you can make these transactions. It's not dependent on somebody else. It's uh, private. It's private. And I think you look at not only what they would do to maybe uh, misbehave with this power, but just think about if we had all digital currency, you have like an EMP attack. We have hurricanes that come through Florida. It knocks out power. Explain you know? EMP. So EMP is an electric ma magnetic pulse. And uh, the idea would be it can fry basically all electronics if, if done powerfully enough. A bomb set off in it the atmosphere could be a bomb set knock off out and, Yeah, absolutely. And so and, that, and that's a huge concern anyways, because we're so, so uh, plugged in on all this stuff with our society. But you add the central bank digital currency and you're a cashless society, you know, you're, in, you're, you're running huge, huge risks there. So I, I think that the, the dangers so, so far outweigh any proposed benefits. We looked at that and said, that ain't going to fly in Florida. I'm proud that we're going to be able to sign this protection in the law. This will be a national issue. Why is it the business of a governor? Well, I think it will be a national. So you read from Biden's executive order. So they're, quote, studying it. The Federal Reserve has come out and said, well, we don't have one yet. And we would only do it after, quote, consulting with the legislative and executive branches. Ideally, we get specific congressional authorization. Wait a minute. It's not ideal that you get congrats. That's what the Constitution requires. So if you want to do this, you would need to get it through both houses of Congress. I'm confident that the Congress would not do that uh, right now. So I think what we did at the state level is protect Floridians against a unilateral action 
by either Treasury or the Federal Reserve. They do not have the authority to do that. They absolutely would need Congress. And so we're leading the pushback. I think Texas is going to do it as well and some other states. And so, look, this is part of our role. Federalism is about uh, there's a back and forth between the federal government and the states. And so we're pushing back and, and against things we don't think are good. And I think it's having an impact. As trusted as cash, as convenient as a payment app, yet also benefit from the same blockchain technology which underpins cryptocurrencies. CNBC. Digital money can make cross-border payments easier, promote financial inclusion, <laughs> and payment system stability. Well, it's interesting, though. Uh, when I started, raised this uh, in Florida saying, we're going we're gonna, to uh, disallow it in Florida, which we can do if Congress could overrule us on that. But I think if the Fed tried to do it unilaterally, I think our prohibition would be sufficient pushback. And when I started doing it, I started talking about some of the dangers from privacy and all that. The corporate press, all these outlets, they all of a sudden started converging that DeSantis is trying to promote conspiracy theories. He's saying this. They basically hate you. Part of that is true. But I think part of it is this is something that they care about. And the question is, why would these organizations care so much about a central bank digital currency? Is it really because they are really that invested in cross-border transactions? Of course not. It's because this is something that could help them advance their ideology of having more central authority and more supervisory power over the average American. Elizabeth Warren says, Legitimate digital public money could help drive out bogus digital private money. Well, I think she, she clearly would be somebody that, that, that rejects any type of digital asset that's not controlled by a central authority. That's consistent with her philosophy. But America's gonna fall behind, Wall Street Journal. The US financial system is still pretty old school when it comes to moving money around. And that's not a great way to run a modern global economy. Oh, please. I mean, I think that we, uh, we fared very well. Uh, I think that we do. And oh, by the way, there are opportunities for people to, to do different things. And, and they don't like some of those other things. They don't like Bitcoin. They don't like some of these other things. And the, if, if digital is so good, why are you opposed to that? And the reason is they don't control it. That's why they don't like it. Thank you, Governor DeSantis. Thanks so much. Thanks for coming. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. New episodes drop the first and third Mondays of every month. You can subscribe everywhere you get podcasts.